You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Hi, everyone. My name is Katherine Burnt, and I serve here at Northway as a GC leader and also in the choir. Um, today, we're going to be reading Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. So if you could please open your Bible with me. And if you do not have one, there is one under the seat back in front of you. Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. To bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. Wonderful to see you. Uh, if you're new to Northway, my name is Brady Goodwin, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, and we're taking a break today from our series that we have been in in the book of Genesis to take some time to consider our mission and vision as a church. And every so often, it's helpful for us to remember what it's all about, what unites us as followers of Christ, what it means to live for him, and how we pray that our work here at Northway and in our city would lead to gospel impact. It's always useful to take a step back and survey the whole, but there were a few reasons why we wanted to do this today, so much so that we actually changed our preaching calendar around slightly to allow for this purpose. For one, we're right at the beginning of our fall season of ministry here at Northway. Many of you are coming back into town after summer, or perhaps you've just landed in Dallas for a new assignment. Work is ramping up, school is starting back, and if you're like me and my family, your calendars will quickly be full. And so before we are inundated with the demands on our time that come in this season, we thought it opportune to dedicate today to this text that we just read as a way to frame the coming weeks and to hopefully leverage them for the sake of the gospel. Second, we have for the last year or so been sharing with you as a leadership more and more of our vision for training and sending here at Northway. So this is near to my heart and something that's often on my mind. But again, we thought it useful as we head into the fall to take some time to look at one of the key sending passages of the entire Bible, one that details the sending of our Savior into the world for our sake. So one hope that I have is that by spending time thinking about how the coming of Christ um, is so meaningful for us, it would also shape and inform our mission here at Northway to make disciples for God's glory. But third, and most importantly, today is an opportunity for us to recenter our attention to the very heart of the gospel. Before we ever get to mission, we must first understand the love of God for us. At one time, we were the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, and the bound, as we read in this text. And at times, if we're truly honest, we can still feel that way. 
Almost daily, we are confronted with distorted or misshapen notions of who God is and what he has done. We are presented with false answers to the problems we face. We are offered a shadow when Jesus presents true substance. And that's for those of us who already know Christ. There are millions in our city who do not yet have this hope. And without someone sharing the good news of Jesus, they will remain this way. But we can never share with others what we ourselves do not possess. So for us today, I wanna look at two things from this text. First, the mission of our Messiah, what he came to do and what it means for us. But second, how we join with him in this work. And so we'll look at the mission of our Messiah and how we join with him in this work. So first, let's talk a little bit about Isaiah 61 and its place in redemptive history. Many have called the book of Isaiah with all of its detailed prophecies concerning God's saving work, a fifth gospel alongside the four gospels in the New Testament. This is because Isaiah is filled with rich descriptions of a coming redeemer. God's anointed one. It's from that Hebrew term anointed that we get our word Messiah. This Messiah from Isaiah's point of view would bring about the salvation, not only of the people of Israel, but also for all the nations. And so to read through the book of Isaiah is to come face to face with the redemptive plan of God, what he would do to rescue his people, as well as the one through whom he would do it. Imagine the surprise then for those familiar with the promises of Isaiah to sit in a synagogue in Nazareth some 2000 years ago and to see one of their own stand up to read this passage and then for him to say to those in attendance, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But of course, Jesus did fulfill every promise of Isaiah 61 and of the entire book in the course of his life, death, and resurrection. But for us to understand why it's so significant that Jesus read from Isaiah 61, we need to see how this text serves as a declaration of his entire mission. And so let's look more closely to see what we mean by this. Look with me at Isaiah 61, verse one. The first phrase says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Now the book of Isaiah includes several places where this phrase is used in reference to the Messiah. Every time we see it, it has the effect of describing the authority with which this person would step into Israel's situation to bring redemption. That authority comes from God himself by means of his spirit. It's Isaiah's way of saying, not only is the Messiah sent by God, he comes with God's very presence. It is thus not simply an emissary or an ambassador that is coming to save God's people, but the king himself. Viewed through the lens of the New Testament, we can see the Trinitarian nature of this statement as well. All three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are active in the commissioning and sending of the Messiah. To put it another way, the work of salvation is central to the very nature of God himself. But notice as well the next phrase in verse one. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. 
I mentioned earlier how that word anointed in Hebrew is where we develop our word Messiah. But that word is also significant because it describes Jesus's very purpose. To be anointed is to be designated, to be commissioned. Jesus, as God's anointed, was set apart for something very specific. He did not have multiple missions, but one mission. He came to earth with one goal in mind. He, of course, did many things in his earthly ministry, but they all contributed toward one end. That purpose, that goal, that mission is at the heart of the next phrase in our text. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This is Jesus's mission, to bring good news to the poor. It was his singular purpose, what he came to do. But that of course begs the question, what does it mean to bring good news to the poor? Who are the poor? And what was this good news that Jesus intended to bring them? And as you think about those questions, imagine with me then the following scenarios. A minority people group maintains a tenuous balance between living in a land that is not their own and surviving under a government that at times can veer toward oppression. In certain cases, they've traveled great lengths to be where they are, facing threat of death or defilement along the way. In others, they or their descendants were brought by force. Either way, they are somewhere far from home. They eke out a living, but just barely, and one that pales in comparison to the people who live alongside them. When they find themselves in broader society, they are often subject to slander, insult, or moral injury. But because of their minority status, there is little recourse to seek justice. They are the poor. Or another, there are untold numbers of young men and young women in our city, not to mention those in older generations, whose stories are marked by the harm that they have received at the hands of others. They never invited such mistreatment, but they were often blamed for it. For years, they have wondered, what did I do to provoke this? What can I do to prevent it? How can I protect myself further against any other threat? For many, it's taken years simply to begin to form an interpretation of everything that they have experienced. For others, they've sought every means to distance themselves, to suppress the emotional chaos and to forge a life of meaning despite what they have endured. They can't fully understand why they always feel on edge, why they retreat when situations become overwhelming or why they seem to act in the interests of self-sabotage or self-destruction. They are the poor. Or yet another, think of the man or woman who when they consider the span of their life, they feel as if everything has gone wrong. Nothing is as it should be. To outsiders, everything seems normal, prosperous even. But underneath the surface, there exists an ocean of resentment, blame, 
frustrated longings, desires for escape, or overwhelming shame. When those feelings become too much to maintain, they turn to what they believe will provide relief. Alcohol, illicit drugs, pornography, sexual brokenness, or any number of behaviors or choices that are meant to distance oneself from the ache they feel within. When they are confronted over such behaviors, they cannot see the love of other people who are seeking to step in. All they can do is defend, deflect, or avoid. They are the poor. Or another, the stories of those who, though they were raised in a society where Christ could be freely proclaimed, whether here or abroad, they've never had someone sit them down and explain what it means to trust in Jesus's work for their salvation. Instead, they have been left on their own to form a way of understanding their world that makes sense for them. But like all of us, when left to themselves, they have adopted a narrative where they are the main character. And as a result, their stories have little room left for a savior and the good news that he might bring. So every effort in their life is bent towards achievement, success, or fulfillment. They pursue this life because they believe that these things are necessary for their stories to be ones worth retelling. But because of their pride, their focus on themselves, they always wonder, why do I feel so anxious? Why am I so angry? Whenever their stories or their values feel at risk, they wonder, how can I feel such high highs and such low lows all in response to my changing circumstances? They feel as if they are groping their way through shadow with no light to guide them. They are the poor. Lastly are the stories of those who suffer loss or grief. The young widow left to care for her children alone, who for weeks and months only hopes to be able to make it through the day without being overcome by despair. The wearisome journey of prolonged illness where emotion falls with every round of treatment and waves of hope are contrasted by fatigue and weariness. The pangs of grief that surge when all is at its quietest or at its loudest in one's life. They are the poor. The poor refers to anyone who is suffering under the weight of sin and its effects. Enslavement, relational brokenness, abuse, disease, loss, or death. Our passage outlines in detail what this means. If we look at verses two and three, the brokenhearted, the captives, those who are bound, those who mourn, the poor then are those in need of healing. They are those in need of restoration of endurance for grace just for today. They are those in need of forgiveness. They are those in need of change. The poor are us, me and you, anyone, everyone whose lives have been touched by the weight of sin's curse. It is to these that Jesus brings good news. 
But of course, we must also define what we mean by good news. All of the above scenarios depict a kind of impact from the brokenness of this world, from the sinfulness of human hearts, and from the evil done to us by others. But it's not enough simply to have a right diagnosis. We must also have the proper remedy. Good news then must be understood from God's point of view. What is the solution that he would offer? What is the way that he would restore the impact of sin on the world? How would he undo the curse that befell the first humans when they turned their hearts away from the Lord? As we look further in our passage, we see that the good news that Jesus brings is the good news of reversal we will see at least six subordinate ideas in verses two and three that all flow from the main idea of bringing good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to comfort all who mourn and to grant to those who mourn and to give them a beautiful headdress, the oil of gladness and a garment of praise. What these phrases show us is that the good news of Jesus is the good news of redeeming, of renewal, of forgiveness, of healing, and of mercy. It is news that says there is hope and life and joy for you who are broken, weary, overwhelmed, enslaved, despairing, and weak. The good news of Jesus then is no less than the news of salvation. It is the news that declares an answer for the sin in every human heart and the sin that has broken the world. It is the offer of hope that every person is longing for deep within them, but which can only come from outside them of the kind of life that everyone would long to have, but which can only be given by the power of grace. It is the promise that such hope is not just an abstraction, but it's real. This hope has put on flesh and has come to us. But for such news to have the impact that it's meant to have, it must be proclaimed. Look at verse one and two. Jesus was sent to bring good news to proclaim liberty, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Without proclamation, news isn't news. It must be shared. Otherwise, no change can be affected. On January 1st, 1863, three years into the U.S. Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation declaring that, quote, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of the state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforth and forever free. In an instant, 3.5 million African-American men, women, and children were declared free beginning with areas already under union control and extending further and further as the war's energy faltered, the Emancipation Proclamation became more and more a reality for those it addressed. However, it would be over two years later, on June 19th, 1865, that the full force of the Emancipation Proclamation would be felt by everyone 
it included. It was then in Galveston, Texas, that General Gordon Granger would issue an order enforcing Lincoln's proclamation for those enslaved in Texas. For these image bearers, the knowledge of freedom existed. They knew it, but it could not be fully experienced apart from proclamation. Good news like that must be brought to bear on one's situation for it to truly be good. In the same way, those who have been gripped by sin's power or by its disastrous, disastrous effects upon them, they will, unless they receive news to the contrary, remain in their condition. They will not know that good news is available to them. They will be, as Isaiah speaks of earlier in his book, those who walk in darkness, but who have not yet seen the light of God's grace. But to bring the light of salvation is what Jesus purposed to do. For him to be sent by God to bring good news to the poor means that by his very person, by his very words, by his actions, his perfect life, substitutionary death and victorious resurrection and by his continuing work today, he is able to save and redeem everyone whose lives have been marked by sin, suffering and despair. He himself is the good news that we need. And with him comes forgiveness, healing, freedom, and restoration. So what is the mission of the Messiah? To bring good news to the poor. But why is this understanding so important for us? One of the reasons that I felt compelled to look at this text today is in light of the propensity that we have to define good news differently in our day, even as Christians. As we said earlier, however we define problems will shape what we perceive to be the solution to those problems. It is therefore crucial that we get both the problem and the remedy right according to the word of God. But if we survey our culture, even within the church, you and I are presented with many supposed solutions to human problems. Each on its own has a certain kind of plausibility. They make sense. They have their own internal inherent logic. But for us to assess whether or not they are the kinds of solutions consistent with the good news that Jesus brings, we have to look at three things. How they define the problems that we face what they therefore promise and what they ultimately produce. When we examine these other gospels, we find that many provide the promise of a kind of relief, but ultimately with outcomes that have the effect of turning our hearts away from God rather than toward him. Take for example, what we might call the therapeutic gospel. The therapeutic gospel is anchored in our modern concept of felt needs. It looks at the core of human experience and establishes the problem through the lens of personal desire and self-interest. In an article written about a dozen years ago, the counselor David Pallison will describe the core characteristics of the therapeutic gospel through these statements. I want to feel loved for who I am, to be pitied for what I've gone through, 
to feel intimately understood, to be accepted unconditionally. I want to experience a sense of personal significance and meaningfulness, to be successful in my career, to know my life matters, to have an impact. I want to gain self-esteem, to affirm that I am okay, to be able to assert my opinions and desires. I want to be entertained, to feel pleasure in the endless stream of performances that delight my eyes and tickle my ears. I want a sense of adventure, excitement, action, and passion so that I experience life as thrilling and moving. Now notice, any one of these things, acceptance, significance, success, delight, passion, they can be a good thing, even a wonderful thing if they are viewed through the lens of God's forgiving grace in Christ. However, for the therapeutic gospel, these attributes are the point. They are the goods without which life could never be all that it should be. They ultimately represent a point of view that expresses no need for God or a savior or for salvation, but rather the expectation that we put upon others or our circumstances to fix our lives according to our self-conceived definitions and desires. But here's the thing. When the therapeutic gospel forms our understanding of good news, all it can do is to bring temporary relief or pleasure. Sure, feeling better about ourselves or about our lives can be good. But what if what we most need is not to feel better, but rather to have a right view of who we are, of what we need, and of what God has provided in Christ. Sometimes we need to actually feel worse so that we can know the sinfulness of our own hearts, the destruction that will come if we continue on our current path and the ultimate despair that a self-governed life will produce. And so notice again how, how Isaiah describes what the Messiah will do when he comes with his good news and what the condition is of those who will receive it to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. The condition of these is far worse than a perceived loss of significance, a lack of acceptance, or a life of boredom. The poor in this text are mourning the devastating power of sin. They are sifting through the ashes of their life and the label of shame that they can't seem to shake. They are responding to a pervasive sense of despair. And I don't know about you, but problems like these require a great deal more than being accepted by others or being validated in my self-identity. Problems like this require nothing less than Jesus himself to step in. And when he does, notice what he provides a beautiful headdress. This image is one of cleansing, 
of renewal and of adoption. Instead of being left to the rubble we've made or that others has thrust upon us, we receive a new name, a new designation and a new opportunity to live as God's child. The oil of gladness. So much more than temporal happiness. The good news of Jesus is news of joy. Sin has been dealt with. Death has been defeated and life can be free of guilt and condemnation. And the garment of praise. Praise at its most basic is a declaration of faith. We believe God has done it. We believe he will do it. And therefore we praise his name. To praise by its nature is to express trust and reliance on the Lord. And if you ever wanna test that, just think about how you feel when you don't feel like singing and what's happening in your heart. The good news of Jesus by contrast enables us to praise. It replaces despair, which is what is meant by the term a faint spirit. Do you see how different this is from a therapeutic view on life? The therapeutic gospel says our problem is one of acceptance and validation. The promise is the way that others can help us move towards feeling good about ourselves. And what is produced is a fleeting sense of well-being that we pray will give us, well, uh, give us meaning or purpose. But the true gospel is dramatically different. The true gospel says our problem is one of sin, death, rebellion, and despair. The promise is that of forgiveness, new life, joy, and praise. And the result is not only a beautiful headdress, the oil of gladness, the garment of praise, but also the astounding outcome of the second half of verse three, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I particularly like the way the NIV translate that last phrase, for the display of his splendor. So how do we ultimately distinguish the true good news of Jesus from the many counterfeits that we encounter? You look to the fruit. You look to see what those things produce in a person's life. The good news goes far deeper than self-actualization. Its roots run deep and the fruit produced signals the glory of God and the power of his grace. When a person has allowed this news to permeate their souls, a new kind of disposition appears. It's one that's God-oriented rather than self-referential. Notice the contrast. In the same article, another list provided by David Pallison regarding the kind of transformation that comes through the good news of our Messiah. Their life begins to look more and more like this. I need mercy above all else. Lord, have mercy upon me. I want to learn wisdom and unlearn willful self-preoccupation. I need to learn to love both God and neighbor. I long for God's name to be honored for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth. I want Christ's glory, loving kindness and goodness to be seen on earth, to fill the earth as obviously as water fills the ocean. I need God to change me from who I am by instinct, choice and practice. I want him to deliver me from my obsessive self-righteousness 
to slay my lust for self-vindication so that I feel my need for the mercies of Christ so that I learn to treat others gently. I need God's mighty and intimate help in order to will and to do those things that last unto eternal life rather than squandering my life on vanities. I want to learn how to endure hardship and suffering in hope, having my faith simplified, deepened, and purified. I need to learn to worship, to delight, to trust, to give thanks, to cry out, to take refuge, to hope. I want the resurrection to eternal life. I need God himself. The therapeutic gospel is unfortunately one of many false ways of proclaiming good news that exists in our culture. Others are joined to it. The gospel of theological liberalism, which says that everything supernatural about the gospel must be jettisoned and that the primary focus is on the here and now. The gospel of sexual identity and expressive individualism, which says that who I am and what I feel are the benchmarks of human experience and that salvation then comes as I learn to live the truest version of myself or the gospel of secular humanism where innovation and goodness are the greatest treasures of society and that they can be achieved on our own apart from any divine external assistance. What is common to all of these is that such good news simply comes from within. The effects of sin are not so great. Our poverty is merely circumstantial or experiential and the result is a world which smooths out any difference so as to avoid offense or seeks to aid others in becoming all that they can be by their own power. My fear for us is that we have become unknowingly or perhaps even consciously influenced by one of these false gospels that we have fallen prey to a kind of drift in how we understand or apply the mission of our Messiah. That our lives are far more prone to despair, a lack of joy and a kind of listlessness than they are marked by faith, praise and a compelling witness to Christ's work. And so if that feels like you today, Take heart. You're not alone. Almost this entire week, I have wrestled with these same feelings. I have struggled with a sense of frustration, of despair, and of futility. I have been far more concerned with therapeutic desires than I have the glory of God and the love that I might show others. I've been tempted to explain away my sin in order to sanitize it to make it less obvious that I am in need of Christ's saving work. And yet he has helped me. He has spoken good news to me. And if you're in that same place, the good news is that we can always find our way back to a right understanding of Jesus's mission. What was once good news for the first time can become good news to us again. Good news is always good news. So the mission of our Messiah is to bring good news to the poor. 
the declaration that sin's kingdom has ended and that a new reign has begun and that we can be saved, redeemed, and transformed. The mission of the Messiah is to save and redeem the lost. But that mission involves us as well. The same people who are the recipients of Jesus's good news, you and me are also those who have a role in seeing this mission go forth into the world. And so we've talked about the mission of our Messiah. We must now consider the role that we play in this work. So let's look together at verse four. This passage is remarkable in its progression. It starts off with a savior, anointed and commissioned by God, sent to bring good news to all in need with the result that those he came to redeem would utterly be transformed by his grace. And now the very same people who have experienced the Messiah's work are those who are called to join with him in his mission. Look at what it says. They shall build up ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. These are the same they as verse three, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. These are the same poor to whom Jesus was sent. Now these same men and women reconciled and redeemed by God through Jesus Christ are called to pursue the same mission as their Messiah, to see the poor redeemed by the grace of God in Christ, to see the desolate places rebuilt, to see lives restored and hope granted to those in need just as we we're in need. To put it more directly, you and I, if we have been saved by Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility and obligation to pursue the mission of our Messiah. You and I, if we have been saved by Jesus Christ, have a responsibility and obligation to pursue the mission of our Messiah. We are called by God to engage in this effort. To fail to do so is to miss something essential in our lives as Christians. The earliest biblical examples we have demonstrate that the advance of the gospel did not come through the efforts of learned men. Instead, it was through normal, everyday believers from all walks of life that the proclamation of the gospel began to bear fruit. Beginning with the church in Antioch in Acts 11, 19 through 22, we see the gospel going forth first to Jews, but also to Gentiles when it says this, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Of course, after this, we see the evangelistic ministry of Paul, take flight across his three missionary journeys to Asia Minor and to Greece. And ultimately we know that the good news of Jesus spread far beyond these locales, truly becoming a proclamation that began in Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, 
and ultimately to the ends of the earth. But it was never in the minds of these early Christians that there could be a separation between their faith in Jesus Christ and the proclamation of his saving work on the cross. The two always went hand in hand. It's part of why it's so significant if you look in the early church that the first missionaries often were the first martyrs. Those men and women saw their calling as irrevocably linked to their conversion. So much so that they were not only willing, but eager to die for Christ. Also that the good news he brought could go forth. Even among crowds and leaders who saw the liberating power of the gospel as a threat. The earnestness of such men and women in the early centuries of the church is part of why you and I heard the good news of Jesus in the first place. If it weren't for people willing to proclaim the hope of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, people could not believe upon him. If it weren't for people ultimately doing so all the way in Dallas, Texas, in decades and centuries past, there wouldn't be the foundation for gospel proclamation that exists in a place like Northway Church here today. But of course, we must acknowledge the obvious truth. I don't think anybody in this room would deny the importance of proclaiming the hope of Christ. I don't think anybody would even refute the obligation that we have as believers to share Christ. But I do think that many of us would confess that we are terrified to actually share the good news that we ourselves have come to believe. We have people in our lives and we are aware of their spiritual condition, but we stop short of telling them that there is a hope that transcends their fears, their sin, and their despair, and that his name is Jesus. Why is this? Why are we afraid? Why are we so often reluctant? The reasons are many. For some of us, we're concerned of the costs that may come to our relationships if we suddenly become the man or woman who's always talking about Jesus. You ever been that religious guy? You know what it's like to tell people what you do for a living when you're a pastor? It's hard. For others, we simply don't know where to begin and we feel completely out of our depth when approaching a potentially evangelistic situation. For still others, we simply can't be bothered because we ourselves are struggling to grasp the good news of Christ for our daily lives or else we're distracted by the cares and concerns of the present moment. So what can we do? How can you and I begin to embrace the call of pursuing our role in our Messiah's mission. How can we begin? Let me suggest five ways that we can join in this pursuit of gospel advance right now where we are. Let me encourage you to make note of these as they could serve as a framework for you in growing in your boldness and confidence in gospel proclamation. So five things. First, we must be dependent in prayer. The beginning of any movement in this area is prayer. We must ask God for his help, both in seeing the opportunity that is before us, but also in breaking through some of those walls that keep us fenced in 
in our efforts at pursuing Christ's mission. We must ask him to help us see where he is already at work. He is at work in the hearts of men and women. We must ask prayer for the reminder that this is happening and that it is God who saves. Our responsibility then is simply to share the hope of Christ and allow him to move. I believe he desires us to pray in such a way that we become attuned to what he is doing and aware of the opportunity before us. You can pray simply, Lord, please help me to see opportunities to speak of you to others today. Help me to see how you are at work in the hearts of men and women around me. And if you know of someone who's not a Christian in your orbit, you can pray for them by name. Please, Lord, would you help me to have opportunities to speak with Allison about her life and to share what you've done in mine. We must be dependent in prayer. Second though, we must also have doctrinal clarity. We must pursue a right understanding of the gospel if we are to ever share it with someone else. Have you ever had a more terrifying conversation if someone asks you, can you tell me what the Christian gospel is? Many years ago, when I was becoming a member at this church, I was asked that question. But back then, I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary, finishing a master's degree, thank you very much. And I was pretty confident in my ability to discern sound doctrine. I felt confident, I felt confident that is, until I was asked that question. And honestly, I struggled. I managed to get something out like, Jesus died for our sins, But my friend who was doing that interview, he said, and then what happened? (laughs) Right, the resurrection. (laughs) What I suspect is that many of us find ourselves in the same place. We can maybe hammer out the basics, but we lack the fluency to bring the gospel into everyday conversation. So the answer for how we improve in this area is twofold. First, we have to become students of the gospel and of God's word. We must have a grasp of the foundations of what we believe. You must have a grasp of the foundations of theology and the narrative of the word of God. It's part of why we offer classes like the story of scripture or Christian theology as part of Northway training. You must see how the gospel weaves a thread throughout all of history so that you and I can cogently discuss the true historical fact that is Jesus' coming, his death on the cross, and how he rose from the grave and the promise of his return. But doctrinal clarity must also be coupled with our third strategy, which is this, personal observation. What I mean is looking for the doorways that human experience will open which provide a context for gospel ministry. Do you listen to the people around you? When you ask them how they're doing, do you pay attention to what they say, to what they don't say, about how they act when things are going well in their life or when things aren't, about the things that make up their worldview or their way of seeing 
Learning how to read others' experiences is an essential part of sharing good news. If you and I can't understand what others are feeling, experiencing, or struggling with, we'll never be able to truly connect God's love to their need. And of course, this implies the kind of life that is looking for such an opportunity. It is positioned to leverage those windows for the purpose of our fourth strategy, which is this, clear speech that invites others. We never wanna be guilty of false evangelism. What's that? That's when we talk about our identity as a Christian, we talk about our involvement in our church without ever getting to the life, death, or resurrection of Jesus. Instead, of course, we want to engage in true evangelism. True evangelism, by contrast, consists of conversations that build toward the knowledge of Christ's work for others personally applied. It doesn't have to happen over one conversation. We can view it as a process of getting to know someone, of hearing their stories, hearing the difficulties and the joys in their life, getting to the hope of Christ and prayerfully applying that hope to those real circumstances that they face. But true evangelism also means inviting people to read scripture with you, inviting them to read a book about the gospel, inviting them to church with you. It doesn't necessarily mean always getting to a gospel conversation every time you speak with someone, but it might mean, it should mean, that you are quick to speak of spiritual realities with people that you're meeting for the first time and that you're definitely ready to speak of the hope of Jesus should the opportunity present itself. And then lastly, we must remember the body. We don't operate in isolation. Part of the reason evangelism, sharing about Christ can feel so intimidating is that we feel like it's upon us. The good news is, is we don't have the power to save anybody. All we can do is share the hope that we have in Christ. But we do that in the context of a family a family with varied gifts that are expressed in many different ways. And in other words, no one person is the perfect evangelistic resource for every other type of person. Thank God. You and I have people with whom we deeply connect and others that we struggle to relate to. So we can let our communities of belonging be places where those we are engaging with the gospel can find others that they naturally connect with. And let's let those relationships be a natural conduit along with gatherings like this or other means where Jesus can be presented for helping others to see the beauty of our Savior. Our prayer at Northway is that as we grow in pursuing this mission, that the joy of Christ, the joy of sharing Christ with others naturally overflows into a culture of multiplication. That it naturally leads to that. It begins here. It doesn't somehow happen overnight. It starts with you and I catching that vision, seeing the beautiful picture of the gospel, applying the good news ourselves and being compelled to proclaim it with others. We've talked a lot in recent months about training and sending and what we want most is to see a church here at the corner of Hedgeway and Walnut Hill that pursues that vision. 
but it can't stop here. It can't be limited to just this body of believers. It must spill over into new churches and men and women who are sent for the sake of the gospel. But we have to start with seeing and receiving that good news of Jesus for ourselves. And so we've talked about the mission of the Messiah. The mission of the Messiah is to save and redeem the lost. And our role is to join him in this work. Let's pray together to this end. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent Jesus for us. Where would we be without him? Where would we be without hope? The promise of restoration and the reality of a reconciled relationship with you. Lord, would you help us even this morning to run to the good news that Jesus brings? That we were lost, we were poor, we were without hope, but that you are sending your son for us who lived the life we couldn't live, who died the death that we deserved, but who was raised in defeat of death and sin could also bring us salvation. Help us as well to take those steps of faith, to not cower in fear, but to be alert to the opportunity that's before us with the people who are already in our lives. We ask for your grace along the way that more and more men and women would come to know Christ, would receive the, the healing and the forgiveness and the freedom that we've been able to enjoy and that would all be for your glory. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.